0: War's over, man. Wormer dropped the big one. What? Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Germans? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. Because when the going gets tough, A tough get going. Who's with me? Let's go! Come on! Ah! Ludo's right. Psychotic, but absolutely right. Now, you could fight him with conventional weapons. That could take years and cost millions of lives. No, no, no. No, in this case, I think we have to go all out. I think this situation absolutely requires that a really futile and stupid gesture be done on somebody's part. We're just the guys to do it. Let's, do it. Let's go! Go, go, go! 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 All right, good morning. I can almost hear the conversation with the visitors for the first time. How can he possibly get anything spiritual out of Animal House? What kind of church did you say this was, honey? Did the Germans really bomb Pearl Harbor? All right, well, we are going to uh, try to get something spiritual out of all that. The uh, scene that we just saw, the gentlemen at Delta House have been expelled from Faber College, and they have to decide if they're going to quit or if they're going to fight. And I just love the the line about them being just the guys to do a futile and stupid gesture. But against all odds, fight they are going to, and uh, they're going to move forward. And we're going to talk about fighting against all odds today. We're going to talk about 52 days. About how in 52 days, against all odds, against a massive enemy, Nehemiah and the community in Jerusalem rebuilt the wall and changed the history of God's city in just 52 days. We're going to talk about each one of us having something called a behad, a big, hairy, audacious dream, a big, hairy, audacious dream that God wants to use you to make a difference in this life for Him. You see, for the eyes of God are searching. I love this Scripture from Chronicles, one of my favorite of all Scriptures. For the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose hearts are completely His. Think about it. The God of all creation is eyes searching the earth. For what? To find that man or that woman, that boy, that girl, whose heart belongs to Him. Not the person who's perfect, not the one who's got it all together, but the one who says, you know, God, my heart belongs to You. I'm in. And then what's what's this God do with such a person? He strongly supports them. His eyes search the earth to strongly support that person. Imagine waking up today and hearing the God of all creation say your name and say, good morning. Today I'm going to strongly support you in all that you do. Whoever puts your foot in my name, I'm going to give you that territory. I'm on your side. I'm in. The king of all creation strongly supporting you. Imagine what that would be like. You see, church, I think we have a great opportunity. You just think about the last decade and all that's happened in this world and in this nation. You know, our nation has been shaken. First from 911 and what that did to the nation's psyche and the fear that was spread throughout our society. The days without planes in the sky. The people who maybe for the first time sought God. Just the stunned impact that that had on this culture and still does today. Followed up by the economic turmoil that we're still in. The loss of jobs and the loss of homes, foreclosures, all sorts of economic pressures. Everywhere we look, we see the family disintegrating, being redefined. We're seeing divorce and abandonment and fatherlessness disintegrate the family. And where's the church in all this? You know, God's church in many places is spiritually sick, racked by scandal, and lacking power, maybe even lacking love. But God is calling us as a church, and He's calling you individually to make a difference. There are tremendous needs, pain and suffering, and God is searching. His eyes search the earth. Who is going to step up? Who is going to make a difference? You see, God wants us to have something called holy ambition. He is looking as intently today as he was in King Asa's day to strongly support those whose hearts are fully his. He's looking for those who dare to dream that they can in fact change the world by his grace. I want to say that again. He's looking for those who dare to dream. Do you dare to dream? Believe that you can, in fact, change the world by God's grace. A friend of mine from Central Ohio, now a famous author and radio person, Chip Ingram, wrote a book called Holy Ambition. And I just love that phrase because, you know, frequently in our culture, we, we are taught, particularly in the church, not to have ambition. And Chip says, I beg to differ. I want you to have great ambition. I want it to be ambition for God. I want it to be holy ambition that He has gifted you and He has put you on this planet for a purpose. I want you to dream big dreams. I want you to have holy ambition to make a difference. And so the question is, will we answer God's call to make a significant impact at this important moment in history? And let me make it individual. How about you? How will you answer God's call on your life to be a difference maker while you walk on this earth? Our model today is Nehemiah. And if you have your scripture, we're going to start in uh, in the first chapter of Nehemiah. We're going to focus on this guy called Nehemiah and, and what it is that he had to say about all this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa. I told the first service I practiced that one all week. I mean, there's a lot of words I just don't say too often in there. Hey, uh, so Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven." So some historical context here about who is this Nehemiah character. He was the Jewish cupbearer for King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And just to look back in history, in 586 BC, the Babylonians had captured Judah. They had taken Jerusalem. After centuries of being warned that if they didn't follow God, that bad things were going to happen, that they'd be taken into captivity, it has happened. And the Jewish people that were a part of Jerusalem are now in exile. We fast forward into the future and the Babylonians have themselves been taken out by the Persians. So the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, is the mighty one. He's in control. In 130 years after the fall of Jerusalem, we see Nehemiah's life. You know, by this time, the Jews are more immigrants than prisoners. They have successful businesses. And in Nehemiah's case, he's got a pretty good job. He's got a pretty good gig going on. He is the cupbearer to the king. Now, this is a position of great prestige and great peril. It's a great job as long as there's not poison in the wine or the food, right? But other than that, he gets the best clothes. He's got the best chariot. He's got the best food. He's got it going on. He's probably got an air-conditioned condo with a flat screen. He's watching ESPN. In other words, life's good for Nehemiah. He's got it together. So what is it, when we look at Scripture, what is it that causes him to care? Because it says, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, when Nehemiah saw what was going on, it shook him to the core. He had to do something here. He wept and he mourned and he fasted. And most importantly... He prayed before the God of heaven. He went to the God of heaven in prayer and said, God, we have got to do something here. You have got to intervene. We've got to make something happen. So questions that we're going to ask and answer today. What is it? What does it take to make a difference from God? And what kind of person does God promise to strongly support? We're going to focus in on five keys to becoming a difference maker for God. And the first of those keys is what Chip Ingram calls a dislocated heart. What in the world is a dislocated heart? It is a God given concern for others that propels us out of our comfort zone. It's a passionate concern for God's agenda that supersedes our own desires for personal peace and prosperity. Chip Ingram asks the question with a double negative is there something you can't not do? In other words, there's some pain that you see in society, there's something going on out there, and it so moves you, it so captures your heart, that you can't not do something about it. You've got to engage. You have got to get involved. What is it? What is it that stirs your heart, that God calls you to action? Is there something like that in your heart, in your life? And if there isn't, God put something there. Because I can I can guarantee you that God wants you to feel like He does and think like He does. In my own life, my dislocated heart was made very clear to me about 20 years ago. We had two young sons at the time. Um, Melissa and I were going through what we would call a marital growth phase, which might be full of pain. At the same time, I was dealing with some of the pain of my childhood for the first time, growing up in a fatherless household, and some of the pain that that meant, and Uh, All that had happened through divorce and devastation. And as I was was dealing with all of that and the pressures of life, I was clinically depressed. It was a tough time. But I'll never forget it. There was a day while I was in church and we were worshiping God. And if you've ever been depressed, you know it's not easy to to connect emotionally or maybe to even worship. But that day I was. And I was connecting to the living God. And he whispers into my heart, he says, Phil, I'm going to make you a healer of men and I pondered that for a minute and thought, well, that's interesting, God, because I'm really not sure I'm going to survive this time. I'm not even sure I want to live. So, you know, knock yourself out. God didn't want me to miss this point. So after the band stopped playing, after worship, uh, before the pastor started speaking, one of the worship guys came up to me as a man who I trusted with, with, uh, with great trust, great integrity, spiritual integrity. And he came up behind me and he leaned in behind me. He said, Phil, I just need to tell you something. He said, during worship today, God spoke to me and he told me to tell you something. He told me to tell you that he's going to make you a healer of men. Same phrase. From that day to this day, I will tell you that my heart has been dislocated. When I see guys being taken out by this culture and, and told that they don't measure up and they can't, When I see guys who have been ripped off or grow up with a fatherless home or don't understand the father heart of a loving God who calls them to greatness, when I see that, I have got to be engaged. I can't not do something. For me, that's my dislocated heart. What's yours? What is it that you so care about that you have to engage? Which leads us to the second point, which is having a broken spirit. Now... What we don't mean here is a lowly or a depressed or a I-can't-do-anything spirit. A broken spirit is this, rightly seeing who I am and rightly seeing who God is. A broken spirit begins with a restored view of God. When I heard these things, Nehemiah says, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive, your eyes open, to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. A.W. Tozer, author and pastor, has said this, What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. How big is your God? How great is your God? You see, Nehemiah had a good view of God. He says, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. He knew that this was a great and awesome God. He knew him personally and he knew him from history. And he knew that God cared about Jerusalem. He knew that God wanted to intervene. He knew the God he was dealing with here. How great is your God? When God comes to your mind, what do you think of? Is this an awesome God who can make a difference? Because if He is, you will have the third condition to making a difference from God, and that is to have a radical faith. You see, God is searching for just one man or woman to step out and to make a difference. I love this verse from Ezekiel. I searched for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I might not destroy it. Just one person, just one boy, one girl, one man, one woman, somebody who will step out and make a difference. I know of such a man. He lives nearby. In the middle of the night in nearby Westerville, Ohio, a self-employed photographer is up feeding his one-and-a-half-year-old son. The boy's peaceful and happy, but he's awake. So in the quiet of that moment, Jim Davis Hicks sensed that God had him awake for a reason and that God wanted to speak to him. Jim listened. God spoke two simple phrases, thirst and take water to the nations. Jim wrote this in his journal and discussed it the next morning with his wife, Laura. They concluded that God wanted them to do something about taking water to the world. But he's a photographer in Westerville, Ohio, and what does he know about water for the world? They both concluded, you know, someday we're going to do this. That was clearly God, and someday we're going to do it. We're going to make a difference. Maybe when we're 50. You know, by then we'll have enough money and the kids will be older. So, yeah, when we're 50, that's when we'll do it. Jim started to research the global water crisis to learn that more than 1.1 billion people in our world lack access to safe drinking water. Each year, two and a half million people die from diseases caused by contaminated water. Ninety percent of those deaths are children under five. Jim had a dislocated heart. How could he possibly wait? One day after that, he met a businessman, John McCollum, who had founded an organization called Asia Hope. Jim noted that this guy was young. He was only a year older than Jim was. And God used that experience to kick Jim out of the nest and make him fly, to take a risk for God, to sacrifice of his time and his energy and his resources. Jim and Laura decided to pass up on parts of this American comfort dream so that they could give their lives away to make a difference for Christ. He went for it. He used his passion and his hope to spread a vision and to invite people to participate with him to save lives and change the world. And in 2005, he and friends founded Thirst Relief, located right here in Westerville, with a mission to overcome death and disease resulting from the consumption of contaminated water by providing safe, clean drinking water to those in need around the world. In just the last five years, Thirst Relief has taken long-term, economical, clean water solutions to more than 130,000 people in nine different countries at a cost of only $5 a person a photographer in a nearby town listening to God in the middle of the night. And God says, I want you to make a difference. And he says, all right. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. You see, because Jim has a radical faith. So what is the definition of a radical faith? A radical faith is choosing to step out to fulfill God's clearly defined will. God's clearly defined will. At great personal risk and sacrifice. Knowing that where God's agenda is championed, God's resources are channeled. I want to chew on that for a second. Where God's agenda is championed, God's resources are channeled. Jim had no idea how he was going to impact the world. But God did. And when he stepped out and he walked with God's agenda, God's clearly defined will, God began to move resources. Nehemiah is countries away. He has no idea how he's even going to get back to Jerusalem, let alone where he's going to get the lumber to fix it. And then he's got this human resources problem. He's got all these people that he's got to go inspire and maybe rebuild this wall. He had no idea how that was going to happen. But here's what he knew. He knew that where God's agenda is champion, God's resources are channeled. This is a great God. And if he's calling you to do something, He will move heaven and he will move earth to get you the resources that you need to make a difference for him. He's going to do it. So why is it that so many people have great dreams and and yet do so little? They have good intentions, but it doesn't seem to matter. While others, even if they plan to do a little, they accomplish a lot. And the answer to that is a strategic plan, which is the, the fourth point in making a difference for God, is having a strategic plan. You know, it begins with a vision. And then you link that vision to reality. And such a plan is birthed in private and it's launched in public. And we see that in both examples here. Jim Hicks, that was a a birthed in private moment where God spoke to him. How about Nehemiah? Nehemiah seeks God. He prays. He weeps. He fasts. And God begins to stir in him in private. God begins to to move him and say, you, Nehemiah, cupbearer, business person, administrator, whatever it is that you are, you're going to be a city builder. You're going to restore my city. I'm going to give you a great dream, Nehemiah. I want you to do it. And so Nehemiah begins to believe and a plan begins to be put in place. A strategic plan in order for it to work has to be specific and well-researched. You know, Jim Hicks had to figure out what is it about this world health problem and water problem. And then very specifically, he figured out how he could address that. How he could get filtered water to the masses in an inexpensive way. How he could make it happen. Nehemiah had to research, first of all, how he could get out of town. He had to have King Artaxerxes give him a pass. That, that in and of itself was a miracle. And then where is he going to get the material to rebuild? And how is he going to put these, these things together? Because as my friend Chip Ingram says, and I love this phrase, nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. It's not enough to have some vague idea. You know, God, I want you to use me someday. Uh, God, I really want to make a difference someday. You know, I don't know quite what it is, but someday. You know, Phil, it's not enough for you to say, I want to be a healer of men. What does a healed man look like? A man who... Understands the loving Father heart of God and can walk out in His true masculine that God made Him to be, what does that look like? And, and how might God bring healing to such a man? Specifically, plan. What is it? How do we get there? You've got to have a specific plan in order to make it happen because the strategic plan defines the problem and then it proposes a we solution. And that's what we see with Nehemiah. He gave a clear, strong challenge, and he motivated at the deepest level for these people to see God's hand was in the vision. You know, what he did was brilliant. He had a strategic plan where he asked everybody to take their part. And we don't have time to develop the whole Scripture today, but he went over to the families that lived over in this part of the wall. And he said, you know, this wall is massive and there are problems everywhere, but I don't want you to worry about the whole thing. I need you just to take care of your part of the wall. You families, you take care of this part of the wall here. You're going to build that section. How about over here? You guys you are going to build this section of the wall. And he took this massive effort and he broke it down into bite-sized chunks that they could handle. Furthermore, little brilliance here, you know, I think that if these guys over here are building their part of the wall to protect them and their families, they're probably going to work pretty hard and have pretty good workmanship because if the wall's weak, that's where they live. That was a brilliant strategic plan, I might say. But he had a strategic plan to get others involved. You know, if you're sitting here today and you're saying, Wow, that, that makes sense to me. I need to have a strategic plan. How do I do that? We've got something really exciting coming up at Quest this fall. We're going to roll out in September a series called R12, which is from Romans 12. And this is actually Chip Ingram's material. It's part of a nationwide um, process where churches all across the nation are going to be doing R12. Some of the people that developed this with Chip are the same people that did 40 Days of Purpose. But in that process, you will be called to be all in for God, to live a life that's holy and worthy for Him, and to make a difference. And you'll have an opportunity to chew on such things as what is my strategic plan. There'll be small groups, and I encourage every one of you to be a part of that, to be a part of those small groups so that you can have a strategic plan and you can make a difference. Now, all of that leads us to the fifth point. Which is this, in order to make a difference for God, you're going to have to have a courageous soul. Because there's a common pitfall here, and that's one of false expectations. You know, frequently we we might say, boy, now this is God's agenda, and this is God's will. Does does God want people around the, the world to have water? Absolutely. So I'm in God's will. And therefore, if I step out in God's will, there's not going to be any problems. You know, it's all going to be clear sailing. Well, life doesn't work that way wasn't designed to work that way. So one thing that we should know as a timeless uh, axiom, our greatest personal commitments and spiritual victories are almost always followed by periods of intense opposition. You see that all over Scripture. Elijah might come to mind. Nehemiah certainly comes to mind. But here's the point. You step out to do something great for God, expect opposition. Expect it. Be ready for it. You know, sometimes we sit out and go, all right, God, I'm going to do something. And somebody comes around and knocks us down or gives us a discouraging word, and we go, oh, that's it. You know, I I must have been outside of God's will. I can't do this. No, that's the enemy. You might be right in the center of God's will. Expect that opposition and know that you've got a fight on your hand. You know, I picture it like this. Here's Nehemiah, and I picture a boxing match. In this corner, hailing from the Euphrates River region... The cupbearer Nehemiah. In this corner, backed by the devil himself, Sanballat and Tobiah. Ding, 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 ding. Smoke-filled ring. The fight's on, right? And the enemy throws the first punch. He throws this punch of ridicule and criticism that we see in the Scripture. Opposition to the rebuilding. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry. He was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from the heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Not to be outdone, his buddy Tobiah the Ammonite steps up and says, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stones. Listen carefully and you hear the voice of the enemy. And that voice would say to you, you can't do it. You don't have what it takes. You don't measure up. Who do you think you are to rebuild this wall? Who do you think you are to make a difference? Don't you know that you have some sin in your life? You know, you've tried things before and it didn't work. Who do you think... You are, the enemy would say to you. And it is every bit the voice of the enemy, just like it is with Nehemiah. It's the enemy who is lying to you, and he's saying that you can't do it. And the God of all creation is saying, I'm looking for you. I'm looking for that one person that steps up and says, you know what, God, I'm in. I know who you are. and You are a great and awesome God, and you have called me to make a difference. And I'm not going to listen to anybody's lies. You know, one of the things I had to learn is not even my own lie. Because as I grew up in a household that was a very negative household and a lot of uh, what I call death speaking, you can't, you don't measure up, whatever. You know, eventually I internalized that. And I grew up and became an adult and I'd make a mistake. I'd I'd say, Phil, you're just a fill in the blank. You can't. About ten years ago, a little light went off in my head as God was dealing with me. He said, you know what? Never. Never. Ever again, not one time, are you going to speak negative death into your own life? Don't do it. Who am I in your life, Phil? You believe that I've changed you. You believe I've got a plan for you. Then speak life to yourself and don't speak death. Regardless of where that voice is, whether it's the enemy himself or whether it's something that you've internalized, when the enemy steps up to you and says you can't do it, understand who you're dealing with. And here's Nehemiah's response. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Boy, I like that. He comes out punching, doesn't he? Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. These are your people. And so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all of their heart. They're making progress. They heard the lies of the enemy, but they're making progress. And the enemy didn't want to go easily, so we go to round two of the fight. And the second punch is this uppercut of discouragement we see in Nehemiah 4-7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. Well, let's go figure. We're making some progress against the enemy. He's going to say that's fine. No, he's very angry. They all plotted to come together and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God. We posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. There is so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall also our enemies said to us before they know it or see us we will be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to their work then the jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over wherever you turn they will attack us can you hear it do you hear the voice of the enemy speaking division among the people speaking fear into their lives do you ever feel that way weary of doing good work thinking about throwing in the towel Do you think the enemy would discourage you individually? Do you think the enemy would try to discourage Quest or his church globally and say, you know what, you can't make a difference. The need's too great. Do you think he would try to cause division and strife and pain? Do you think the enemy might try to thwart God's work to do that? And here's Nehemiah's counterpunch. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers. Fight for your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. And when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. You know, Again, we don't have time to break out the whole Scripture here, but he had half the people working and half the people guarding. He had a strategic plan. He guarded the lowest points. But most importantly, Nehemiah steps up and says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. His response teaches us how to come off the ropes in the fight. Nehemiah was, number one, proactive. He didn't just sit back and say, hey, enemy, go ahead and do something. No, he had a plan. He came back. Right? He covered the lowest points. He had a plan here. Number two, he remembered who was on his team. Man, I'm on God's team. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then Nehemiah decided to fight. And by the way, he never fought alone. You can't fight alone. We have got to lock arms with each other and fight together. You know, one example that we have here in our own church is the gentleman who spoke to us the last couple of weeks. Scott Marrier, who's the executive director of the Westerville Area Resource Ministry, WARM. I read a white paper, um, research paper this week, that 25% of nonprofit organizations in America are expected to go out of business this year. 25. Now, these are organizations that have been founded to do something good, right? And because of these tough economic times, one out of four is expected to be gone, which is just amazing to me. You know, these are really rough times, but I was pondering that and I look back, I've known Scott since he was a young executive at Wendy's and then when he was an executive at Longer Burger Company and I watched Scott, God use Scott's wisdom and his administrative skill to make a difference in the corporate world. But all of that was just a preparation for this day. It was a preparation for the day where he could make a direct difference for God's kingdom. You know, Scott is becoming an expert on something called the suburbanization of poverty. Poverty is no longer in the inner cities. It's in the suburbs. And Warm deals with that. They provide this compassionate short-term assistance, educational services, spiritual support in order to encourage individuals to achieve a God-reliant, self-sufficient life while restoring dignity and hope. And while others are faltering, last year, WARM had 4,200 families that were fed through their food pantry program. That represents 13,000 individuals, 5,800 children. It's a 35% increase over the year before with a balanced budget. Over 234,000 meals shared to alleviate the problem of hunger in the community. Volunteers contributed over 7,300 service hours. 775 families were provided essential financial assistance. Things like rent, utilities, food, uh, fuel vouchers, auto repairs, uniforms, educational materials. And finally, 43 clients found employment through their jobs assistance program. You see, when everybody else has their head down, and the enemy is saying to other people, you can't make it, Scott knows something. He knows that where God's agenda is championed, God's resources are channeled. There's that phrase again. You champion God's agenda, and he's going to make it happen. And so despite great opposition, despite all this, we come to this wonderful scripture, the completion of the wall. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. And when our enemies heard about this, all of the surrounding nations were afraid. They lost their self-confidence That braggadocia from them, that hubris from the enemy, it's gone. Because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. God showed up. You know, I was pondering what might be happening 52 days from now. 52 days from now, it will be mid-September. The Buckeyes will already be 2-0. They will have just beaten Miami and be ranked number one in the country. That's not that far away from now, is it? 52 days. Doesn't seem like that much time. What can you do in 52 days? Or how about 52 weeks? Or how about the remainder of your life to make a difference for God? Regardless of what season you are in your life, whether you're old, whether you're young, God has a plan for your life to make a difference on this planet. The key that we see from Nehemiah is courage, If we had time, we could develop all of these chapters, but Nehemiah shows us this courage to fight. When the opposition tries to discourage us, we fight. The courage to confront. When the opposition wants to divide us as his people, God's people, we confront. And the courage to endure. When personal attacks seek to destroy us, we never, ever quit. Getting back to my friend John Bellucci. He wasn't going to quit when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor. It wasn't going to happen. For those of you who haven't taken American history, you might want to read that portion before you take the, the John Belushi's word for it. But that brings us to this beehad, had Big, hairy, audacious dream. I think that God wants to challenge you personally. And he wants to challenge us corporately to have a big, hairy, audacious dream. This dream is so big that it can only happen if God shows up. It's not a small dream. It's a big dream. God has to show up to make this happen. Ask God to give you His holy ambition. Dare to dream that you can live your life in a way to make an extraordinary difference for God. Extraordinary difference. So what will that mean for each of us? First of all, it will mean spiritual growth and modeling because we can't impart to others what we don't possess ourselves. If we're going to give them God's hope and God's power and God's truth, we have to own it. And we have to have a strategic plan because nothing becomes dynamic until it becomes specific. So as we close, let me share with you some principles for impact here. Things that we might want to focus on. Number one, we must let God work in us before he will work significantly through us. You see, I've got to make God the God of my heart. I've got to let Him dwell here. I've got to let Him change me. Because if I don't, it's going to be all about me. God, change me that I have something to give, that you can work through me. Point number one. Point number two, until we make prayer a priority, progress will never be a reality. Every time it hit the fan, what did Nehemiah do? The first thing he did was pray when he heard about the problem. Every time the enemy attacked, he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. If we want the power to change things in this planet, we have to be people of prayer. And then finally, difference makers are not necessarily those with a lot to give, but those who make available all that they have. Will you make available all that you have, what you are, and say, God, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm going to give you my heart. Let's make a difference. Let's go. Other principles for impact. When Melissa and I were uh, getting ready to build a house a number of years ago, we, we saw this phrase, and it's been forever impactful on us. It impacted us so much, there's a room in our house where it's actually painted around the top of the walls, just under the ceiling in one room. Care more than others think is wise. Risk more than others think is safe. Dream more than others think is practical. And expect more than others think is possible. You see, I think God wants us to do that. I think He wants you and I and us as a church to have holy ambition, to have this big dream. It can only happen when God shows up. And boy, does He want to show up. He wants to show up and say, you know what? I did that. And make no mistake, these people, that person, no, they couldn't have done that, but I did. The living God did. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your presence here just uh, speaking to us even now. And In the quiet of this room, Lord, I pray that you would speak and that we would listen. I pray that you would stir hearts, every heart, that every person here would know that you have spoken to them, that you're calling them to greatness. You're calling them to make a difference. You're calling them to trust you, Father, to see you as who you are, the great and awesome God that you are to know that they can make a difference for you, Father. I pray that you would make that dream real, you would make it specific, and that you would give them hope, Father, that they could actually make it happen. And Lord, I pray for us as Quest. I pray that you would give us a dream. You have placed us here in this place, in central Ohio, to make a difference. And all around us, Father, we see pain. We see lives that need you. We see hearts that need you your healing, your touch. We see marriages that need you. Lord, help us to stand collectively as quests with a big dream, expecting you to show up that you're going to use us to make a difference. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The eyes of the Lord search to and fro across the earth. Looking for that man or that woman or that boy, that girl, that church that says, you know what, God, I'm in. What's your dream? What's your agenda? We're in. We want to be a part of that. Have a big dream that can only happen if God shows up. And know what can stand against. Nothing can stand against our God. He is for you. He's with you. He's calling you today. I encourage you to join us next Sunday as Senior Pastor Ross Odom will be back from vacation. He's going to begin a new series, The Power of Focus, starting with Matthew 6. Seek first the kingdom of God. Make it a great week.